I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 2 this evening. Philippians chapter 2. So this is the 22nd message in this series. Uh, so it was one message of introduction and then seven sets of three messages along the way. This being the third of the seventh set. And the goal has been to try and lay out uh, what, what might be some benchmarks of discipleship. If we're, if we're uh, being faithful to the task of making and maturing disciples, then these would be uh, the, the values or traits or principles that would help direct us in that process. A person comes to know Christ by trusting in him, and then they begin to identify or belong to the body by identifying with Christ and his people and his work, begin to grow in Christ, uh, taking responsibility to do that, using the resources that he's entrusted to us, begin to serve the Lord, begin to uh, share the resources that God has blessed them with, be engaged in the multiplying of of servants, disciples, servants, and leaders. And then we are in this seventh, the sending part. Uh, one uh, aspect of it that I was thinking of just uh, in terms of, uh, I'm sure over the course of it, you've picked, uh, picked up all kinds of different uh, points of emphases. But one of them that I think is important, particularly in a church like ours, that rightly emphasizes the preaching and teaching of the word is to guard against the tendency to think of maturity as information gathered, right? Because it, it is possible for you to know a lot of the Bible and not be mature. In fact, knowledge puffs up, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, but love edifies. And when you look at maturity as defined in Scripture, for instance, Hebrews chapter 5, that the, the gap between being uh, stuck with milk and moving to meat isn't actually an intellectual gap. It's actually an ethical gap. It is actually having your senses trained to discern between good and evil. They were unskillful with the word of righteousness. That's why they were actually stalled at a state of immaturity rather than moving to maturity. And so a lot of the things that we've been saying um, have been application-oriented and on purpose. Because it's easy for us who have been believers for a long time to start to think, that we're mature because we know things. And that's not actually the case, right? You can actually know a lot and be living contrary to it. When, when we start to sin, it's not because we actually lack knowledge, most often, I should say. It's not all of a sudden like our brain just emptied out and we don't know what's right. It's, it's not as if all of a sudden we forgot all of our theology in terms of intellectually. It's that we're choosing to live contrary to it. And usually that's the outgrowth of starting to cultivate a pattern 
of knowing what's right and not doing it, which James says to know what's right and not do it is what? Sin. Right? So, so the reality of it is when we're talking discipleship, we're talking following Jesus, not filling up notebooks. And if you've been around at all, you know I like to fill up notes, all right? I, I think knowing the scriptures and knowing how to understand them, making sure we're thinking through things theologically are, are absolutely important because one of the benchmarks of growing as a congregation toward maturity is unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and also the stability that prevents us from following every wind of doctrine and being susceptible to the cunning craftiness of men. So please do not hear me saying, forget that knowledge junk, just do something for Jesus. What I'm saying is, it's actually gotta be both. And the last thing we should be is just a repository of information so we sit around and think we're spiritually mature while we live a life that's contrary to the knowledge we have. Or in this case, we essentially are ingrown personally or congregationally instead of having embraced the mission of Jesus Christ. Because this seventh trait that we're talking about, sending, is built on the core principle that a mature believer is fully committed to the Great Commission. I mean, if we've really grown to maturity, a part of that is following Christ in his mission to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he came. And to participate in his effort to build his church, because that's what he's doing between his first coming and his return. And if we're really following closely to Jesus, we will be engaging in that mission endeavor because we've received the gospel, we become responsible for the gospel, or as I said last Sunday night, we all should, every place should go from a mission field to a mission force, right? The gospel at one point landed here when it had never been here. I mean, there was a day when the gospel had never come to southeastern Michigan, way before it was ever called that. No one had heard the name of Christ here. And someone brought the name of Christ. And the word of God was proclaimed and a foundation was laid. And people then began to build on that foundation. And from that foundation should have been sounding out the word of the Lord into all of the region around us and to the ends of the earth. Because that's God's plan, a place that receives the word, becomes responsible for it. We go from being a mission field to being a missionary force spreading the gospel out. And that can't happen in abstract, right? It's like we say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the way it should be. I hope somebody does that, right? The only way that actually happens is if we actually do it. Right, it's not, missions is actually the whole point of the church, 
I mean, that's, that's why Christ established it, so that he could call out his sheep and gather them, as John 10, 16 says, into one flock. He is in this task to accomplish this purpose, and we must embrace it with him. And so there are three parts to that. We've looked at one of them, right? I took a whole week to sort of lay that principle. Then last week, we looked at the first part of that. That's praying. That was 119. Paul is in prison as a missionary for Christ, a messenger. And he knows that his deliverance will turn out through their prayers. And so we talked about the fact that we must engage in the work of Christ through prayer because that's what actually supplies the front line with workers. Matthew chapter nine, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers, that we actually help in that harvest, like 2 Corinthians 1.11 says, you joining in helping us through prayer, that we actually uh, secure from the Lord the blessing on the gospel that causes it to spread rapidly and be glorified, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, and we also secure protection for God's servants because not all have faith. And so it is a vital part of what we're doing as senders to be praying. Tonight, we wanna look at the second and third parts of that. And, and to start off, we'll look at Pro, uh, Proverbs. We'll look at Philippians chapter two, verses 25 through 30. Let me read Philippians 2, 25 through 30. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not, only on, not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So the three things I said a couple of weeks ago, Prayer, participation, provision. This is the participation, actual involvement in the work of the missionary. Notice the language that's used to describe Epaphroditus in verse 25. Paul says he's my fellow worker and fellow soldier. So there's Paul's identification with him as one who shares in the work. But then notice the end of the verse, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And then at the end of verse 30, he was completing what was deficient in your service to me. And don't, I don't think we should read that deficient um, as like uh, a deficit kind of a thing, but as there was a, a gap that needed to be filled in your service to me, and he was the one who filled that gap, right? He was, he's not complaining about the Philippians at all. That's why we might say like, oh, yeah, your service was sort of deficient, we had used that like as a negative thing. He's simply saying there was something that needed to be done and he was the one who filled that gap on, on your behalf. He, he did what was lacking. He brought and completed that. But notice the connection here. So here's the church at Philippi. 
Here's Paul in a Roman prison because of the advance of the gospel, and, and they send Epaphroditus, right? He's your messenger, and verse 25, and uh, second part of it, and your messenger and minister to my need. So, so here's the church at Philippi, not just praying for Paul, but actually sending one of their members to minister to Paul and to be a messenger on their behalf to fill up a gap that was needed there. They, they had not allowed the gap of distance to keep them from participating in the work. Right? And, and, and I think that's important to see because what this is meaning, think of Philippi like, like a, a church, right? A local assembly. The local assembly stays engaged by ministry to and with the sent one. Right? They actually stay engaged in the work of Paul. Remember, we started in 1-5, from the first day, your participation, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm answering the question, how did they do that? Last Sunday night was by prayer. This week was by actually staying involved in the work. They, they didn't just send Paul off from Philippi out to do the rest of the stuff. Say, hey, y'all, you go, we'll pray for you. Certainly important, but they actually took one of their members, one of their servants, and, and sent him to minister to Paul and along with Paul, right? Because Paul calls him my fellow worker and fellow soldier. He's working with Paul. So he was ministering with Paul, but also he was your messenger and minister to my needs. So he was ministering to Paul as well as along with Paul. And that's how the church at Philippi stayed engaged in the work. They became partners with Paul because of that. Now, Paul was not sent out by the church at Philippi. So there is a little distinction that I need to make. He was sent out by the church of Antioch, Acts chapter 13, right? So, so I'm not, I don't want to take and, and uh, sort of sweep Philippi into that role. Uh, but what we do see is the activity and commitment of a local church to a missionary who's advancing the gospel, right? And, and so from time to time, you'll hear us talk about missionaries that we have sent out. Those are missionaries that are actually members of our assembly that we have commissioned and sent out to the field. But then we have other missionaries that we would describe as missionaries that we support. In, in this particular case, Paul's relationship to Philippi would be like that. They were one of his supporting churches. Antioch was his sending church. And as his sending church, Antioch would have more, uh, more involvement in Paul's ministry because the mission started from Antioch, resulted in churches. And then if you remember in Acts 14, they reported back to the church at Antioch what God had done. So there's a relationship there that's a stronger one. And sometimes, um, 
So I, I hope we have this right, all right? But sometimes repetition is important in that. And I think I said this a couple of messages ago in this. One of the things I think is a mistake uh, in modern contemporary thoughts about missions is that churches exist for missionaries because everything sort of runs outside of the church, right? People, people, and I'm not meaning to diminish, diminish it. I'm just trying to, I'm just going to put air quotes around. They get called in some kind of a parachurch setting and they get recruited by some mission board and then they show up at a church and say, hey, will you support me? And that's not the pattern in the book of Acts. It's actually the local church is gathered and they're serving the Lord in that local church. And then from that church, the movement goes to send them out. So the pattern in the New Testament is that missionaries actually are the extension of a local church. They're sent by the local church to do the work entrusted to the local church, right? Because the Great Commission isn't a personal responsibility. You can't fulfill the Great Commission on your own because remember what the Great Commission says? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means you need local churches to fulfill the Great Commission. The ordinance of baptism is an ordinance of the local church. So churches send out missionaries to do the work of the church. Right? They're, they're sent out, they're sent ones from local assemblies. Now, I'm, I'm emphasizing that because I'm trying to show you the, the reason why Paul would be so overjoyed in chapter one at the Philippians' participation with him, partnership in the gospel, because Paul saw this as being the work of local churches, not just the work of a bunch of people running all over the globe doing whatever they wanted to do. And so the church at Philippi had actually embraced that by, by praying for Paul, but not only praying for Paul, sending some of their own to go minister to Paul and with Paul in the work. They wanted to be vitally involved in it. They wanted to be partners in the work. And therefore they were engaged in that regard. And that means that, that every local assembly, I think certainly should be true of every missionary we have, right? It's one of the encouraging things. And I've had missionaries tell me this, right? And I, I would say this to commend, uh, sort of like Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says to the Thessalonians, you know, um, you don't need to be told to love one another because God has taught you, but, and you're already doing it, but excel more, right? So that's, that's what I'm doing right here. Right, It encourages my heart when I have one of our missionaries uh, tell me, like they show up here and people are talking to them intelligently about what's happening on their mission field because they've been keeping track of it. 
They've been reading the Missions Digest. They've been reading the prayer updates. They've been praying specifically about things. And, and then this missionary happens to show up and, and these people know about it, right? That's the way it ought to be. And as well, that, that, that God has enabled our church at times to send people to go join in in the work, to, to get involved in projects that they're doing, to participate. From time to time, groups in our church will communicate with missionaries about, hey, are there needs or things that we could help with? And, and they get alongside of them in that project, right? They, they participate in the work. It's one of the reasons why uh, we send folks to the field, because we have not just personal uh, believer responsibility for those that have been sent out from our church, we actually still have shepherding responsibility. We have care and direction that needs to happen. All right, so two weeks ago, I guess a week and a half ago, I was in Zambia, right? And a part of the reason... Uh, that I was in Zambia is because we have families from our church who are serving there, right? And so, so the opportunity to be there, to get involved in the work that they're doing, to interact with them, not just minister with them, but minister to them, to visit them, talk with them, see their families, that's a part of how our church stays connected to the work, right? That they're not just gone off doing their thing, but we're actually involved in it. We're participating in the work. That's why in COVID sort of, uh, COVID and a few other things have sort of thrown a dent in it, but that's why uh, we've had a, a, a pretty significant commitment of our church to ministry trips so that we send members of our assembly to go visit those who are out on the field so that they can minister with them and to them, right? That's, that's what we're talking about here. So that, so that any of us could step into, so to speak, the role of Epaphroditus and be someone who comes from our church to come alongside of that missionary to, to minister to them, to be our messenger to them and minister to their need to complete the, 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 the ministry that needs to happen to them, right? That's something that should be a high priority for our church so that we're really participating in the mission's task of Christ. Look now over to chapter four, because there's a third element of serving well as senders. Look at verse 15 to 18 of chapter four. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, uh, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing 
to God. So here's the the third component, which is provision. So prayer, participation, provision, or over the years, because I like to just like toss out different ways of saying it, intercession, involvement, investment. Right? How do we serve well in this sending capacity? It's through providing for the work. Notice uh, the, the, the commencement of it, verse 15, at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia. I think he emphasizes that first component because of what he said in chapter one, verse five, from the first day until now. What he's stressing about the Philippian church was their radical commitment to be a part of the advance of the gospel. From the moment the gospel penetrated Philippi, they embraced it and then took responsibility to see it spread. And and I've talked about this before, I think, in this series, but Paul was at at Thessalonica, uh, or I'm sorry, left Philippi, went to Thessalonica. His time at Philippi was extraordinarily brutal. I remember he was beaten and taken to jail. He describes it in 1 Thessalonians 2 as having been shamefully mistreated, right? So, so the, the time at Philippi was, was very difficult. He left and, and goes to Thessalonica, and, and they immediately begin to send resources to help him do the work. Right? They immediately engaged in that and did so uh, consistently. Notice it says in verse 16, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And uh, I've, again, I've said this before. Um, we know from the book of Acts that Paul uh, ministered in the synagogue for three Sabbath days. Right, And then a riot breaks out. And sometime uh, relatively shortly after that, Paul moves on to Athens, right? So I don't think Paul was only there 15 days, but that, that could be, right? So first Sabbath, day one, second Sabbath, day eight, third Sabbath, day 15, right? It could be that tight, or obviously it could have extensions either way. In all probability, there's a little bit of on the front end and a little bit on the back end, but nobody thinks that Paul was in Thessalonica for a long time. Like say Corinth, he was at Corinth for 18 months. He, he parked at Ephesus for two years. I don't know of anybody that thinks Paul was even remotely close to Thessalonica for that long. Probably just months short time, and here this church in Philippi that's a brand new baby church among people who are poor, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, send gifts more than once to Thessalonica so Paul can preach the gospel because his pattern was he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't take up offerings among those that he was trying to reach for the gospel because he didn't want them to think that he was selling the message, right? So, so he would refuse to take up offerings, 
during his early evangelism in a city and preaching the gospel. So he was dependent usually on tent making. We know from the book of Acts that he would actually work with his own hands so that he could provide for himself. And he traveled with a group of people. And then when his full team was there, he'd let them be doing work so he could devote himself to preaching. So when they sent to meet his needs, it was to alleviate him from having to be bivocational so that he could devote himself to the preaching of the gospel. That was their motivation. We want Paul to be able to preach the gospel, not have to make tents. They were consistent in this kind of giving and commitment to it. And notice it's described in verse 15 with the word shared. That's the, that, that word translates the word family that was mentioned back in 1.5, fellowship. Right? Sometimes this is one that sometimes gets flashed around uh, by preachers and teachers, koinonia, right? It's, it's to share and it's translated communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Right, so, so this is you communed with me or fellowshiped with me or partnered with me in giving and receiving. You know, Paul's end of that partnership was the receiving. Their end of that partnership was the giving. They were fellowshipping in the work of advancing the gospel by sharing their resources with someone who could then devote himself to the task so that he could give out the gospel. And they were committed to it in that way. And notice the reasons why Paul is grateful for them doing this, right? The first is in verse 16. Look at the end of the verse, for my needs, right? He, he says this gift, this provision, actually provides for my needs. Verse 18, he says, I've received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied. So their gift met the needs of Paul to do the work. But it also, look at verse 17, it produced fruit for their account. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account or the fruit that you have in this. And I... I you know, I think we live in a cynical era, right? But I think Paul could sincerely say it wasn't the gift that mattered. It was the fruit that accrued to your account, right? And, and someone go, well, yeah, like, well, then don't take the gift. Well, that, that's not the point. The point, I believe, is that Paul believes what he says in verse 19 and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And he believes what he said earlier in the chapter about being content in whatever state he's in, whether he abounds or is without, that Paul, Paul earnestly could say, the gift is great. I'm thankful for it. I'm amply supplied. But the more important issue is that it evidences that you understand eternal things better, right? That you actually understand, I would think, the teaching of Jesus when Jesus said, 
lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And here's Paul saying, this is you doing that. That's, that's huge. You are actually, he'd say to the Corinthians about this kind of thing, that their gift to, to meet the needs of the believers in Jerusalem was actually the confession of their faith in the gospel. And this is, this is a part of, uh, of what we really got to see connected to the maturity side of it, right? Because Jesus is very clear that if we really understand eternal things, then we will be depositing our resources in heaven because we'll understand that that's far better than consuming them on this planet. And in fact, he warns in Matthew 6 that if our eye is stingy, then our heart is dark. Right? We, we, um, we can sometimes get, uh, we can get uh, rightfully vexed about the charlatans that try to fleece the flock of God. Right, that that want to uh, manipulate people into giving so that they can have gold-plated faucets in their seventeenth bedroom in their third mansion, right? And I think there's going to be a very warm place in the end for that. But we shouldn't miss that that Jesus Himself taught this. It was Jesus who said, "Don't." Don't hold on to your treasure. Lay it up in heaven where it can't be touched, right? And, and Paul's saying, here's the thing I'm most looking at is, I mean, I'm, I'm taking care of, that's Paul, I'm taking care of, but this is fruit for your account, right? You are actually laying up treasure in heaven by your participation in the mission of Jesus Christ, that, that, that the one, to use language again of 2 Corinthians 9, the one who supplies seed to the sower, right? He will supply seed to the sower so that you can have a harvest of righteousness. I mean, God's the source of everything that we have, and he gives us seed so that we can sow for him what will produce a harvest of righteousness. That's the language of Jesus, the language of Paul here. And so you and I, when we give toward the work of God to advance the gospel, are actually participating in sowing seed that is going to have a harvest at the day of Christ, right? It will have that great result and fruit to our account participation in the work because of it. But also look at the end of verse 18. He encourages them to do this because it's pleasing to God. What you have sent, the gift you've sent, is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, and I, and I mean, I think it's only, it's literally the only way you can say this uh, because it's true. God does not need us to do his work, right? I mean, when Jesus wanted to pay his taxes, he sent Peter down to grab a fish and pull a coin out of the mouth. 
right? I mean, anybody who thinks God needs me because he can't get his work done without me doesn't understand the whole point of our giving. Our giving isn't because he's taxed us and we have to pay it. It's not because uh, he depends on us in any way. It's because we're offering to God something that we desire to be a fragrant aroma, acceptable in his sight, pleasing to him. Right? Remember, remember when Jesus sat outside the collection boxes and all kinds of people came through and, and he said about the widow, she gave more than everybody else. That clearly wasn't the monetary size of it. Right? There were larger gifts that went in. But she gave of, of the substance of what she had. And, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if the intent of the heart is there, it's not judged based on how much you give, but actually what God has entrusted to you. Right? God, God, God isn't keeping a scoreboard in heaven. And like he's got some divine missionary telethon going on and, you know, we're all watching the needle rise. It's, it's that the Lord who saves us is worthy of our deepest devotion. And, and devotion, if you remember what David said when he went to make a sacrifice to the Lord, he said, I won't give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Right? When we just sort of like a skim a little bit off the top and it doesn't affect us at all, right? I'm not certain that that's showing how much we value the Lord. It really is the reflection of a heart devoted to Christ and captured by his promises that realizes that everything sent on ahead through the work of Christ has eternal value far greater than anything that this world can offer to us. That's why it's a mark of maturity. You know, uh, so I guess it had been nine days ago, I was uh, leaving Zambia and the fellow who was my driver back and forth, um, he, he, he said to me, because um, we're, we're talking about it, and obviously he knew the families that are from our church that are there, and and then, um, you know, we'd start talking about other places in Africa. And he said, boy, you know, you, you need to come over and teach our church, uh, teach our churches how to, how to give for missions. I mean, what do you do? And it's a, he's sort of like, what do you do? What do you do? And I'm like, um, I mean, honestly, I didn't know what to say. Because we don't have any, like, we don't, we don't have any, like, really cool program to get more giving. Right? We, don't, we, don't, we don't have ways of, I mean, which I've, I've talked about before. I mean, you, you've got people who give you all kinds of formula. I mean, actually, last time I mentioned a few weeks ago, we were preaching, I was preaching something, and I, and, and I get an email like the next day, how to increase your giving by 30% before the year's end, right? They're, they're marketing their strategy and program on how to, if you do these, you know, these things, you can up your giving at your church, you can do da 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 and I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling bad for this guy. I'm going, well, you know, it really just comes down to 
a heart for the mission and a mindset that's controlled by the word of God. Right? If, if, if we understand what really matters in this world, it's the mission of Jesus Christ. And if we really understand what matters in light of eternity, then, then it's going to open up our arms and our hands. Right? Because it's, it's actually the product of spiritual health. It's not a program. It's not, it's not a mechanism, right? I mean, I, I decided ages ago that if you have to squeeze nickels out of people, you have a, real, a really deep spiritual problem in your church, right? If, if I have to guilt you into giving, then we're not healthy at all, right? Because if we're really healthy, we love Jesus, we love his work, we trust his promises, then, then, then God's going to open up our hands. God's going to move his people to meet the needs that God wants to supply for because people actually will believe verse 19. Paul says, you gave to me and met my need and my God will supply all of your needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. And, and so, so instead of trying to force people, right, I think I, I've told you before, I, mean, I, I knew one guy that, that basically calculated what the membership at their church would be making if they were all on welfare and then tithed off it and then stood up in the church and said, if we were all on welfare and we all tithed, we'd be giving more than we give, right? To try and guilt everybody into giving more. And the fact is that that, that kind of manipulation does not produce maturity. It's external constraint. It's not internal, captured by the glory and promises of God. And and God's been faithful to just cultivate a heart of maturity that sees the value of eternal things and the the value of seeing gold and silver translated into souls that have come to hear about Christ, right? Churches that have been established, the name of Christ exalted. You can't put a price tag on that. And you can't imagine the reward of God for the faithfulness to the task of Jesus Christ. That's what ought to matter to us. And that's what ought to cause us to think, how can I leverage, how can I leverage more and more the seed that God has given me into a harvest of righteousness? How can I leverage the stewardship of what God has entrusted to me into things that can't be broken, can't be stolen, won't decay or rust because they have eternal glory all over them? That's what Jesus wants in our hearts as we grow to be senders for the work of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us as a church uh, to have a heart for real discipleship, that we all might be growing in our uh, following of Christ and 
and uh, pursuing him more closely, more faithfully, that we as a congregation might be devoted to the task of making and maturing disciples, that we want to help other people follow Christ better, that we ourselves want to be more faithful followers of Christ. And Lord, you've given us the privilege, uh, really unique privilege, to be a sending church for many that have gone out to the nations. Help us to serve well alongside of them in the work by prayer and participation and provision. Help us to, to see that the things that will last for eternity should have greatest significance to us. And may you, in your kindness and grace, use us to be a launching pad of the gospel into our community, our region, and to the ends of the earth. And may we do so until the end of the age. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.